Good morning, Hallows Church. Go ahead, go ahead and take out your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 35, that scripture we read just moments ago. My name is Keith Ferguson. I'm one of the pastors here within the Hallows, specifically here in West Seattle. I'm grateful to be here worshiping with you this morning. We've spent the past few weeks talking a lot about the authority of Jesus, the authority of the Christ. It's been pretty challenging, honestly. Um, that wraps up a little bit this morning, but not before we see uh, what's honestly a beautiful example of what it looks like to submit to the authority of Christ out of love. Um, before we get into that a little further, I'm going to pray for us one more time and then we'll jump in. God, we thank you that you're good and that your love is forever. And God, thank you that you remember that we're just dust and all of us come in this morning feeling weakness in some way. And God, even though the scriptures have some very difficult and very challenging things to say to us this morning, I pray that, that any time that that happens, that it would serve the purpose that we would encounter your mercy. And so thank you for what we are going to read and study together this morning. And I pray that every element of what we engage in as a church um, throughout today and, of course, throughout all of our lives, Lord, would bring glory to you and would help us to be joyful in you. You are a wonderful God, and we thank you for being our Savior. And now we thank you for your word and ask that you would use it to instruct us and to teach us. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So it began back in chapter 11. Jesus enters into Jerusalem, this authoritative statement that he is the son of David. Uh, this king that all of Israel has been waited for. In fact, this king that the entire universe has been waiting for. He comes into Jerusalem. He starts turning over tables in the temple. Starts upsetting all kinds of things, including people. And their response is, who do you think you are? What authority do you think that you have to do things like this? And this is the central question in this small section of Scripture, this entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. What authority do you think you have to do the things that you are doing, to say the things that you are saying? And Jesus would respond in various ways, including a parable that draws on the Old Testament about God uh, planting a vineyard, and that would be his people. And, and this was a way of him demonstrating in the Old Testament that God has authority over his people in the same way that uh, a vineyard owner has authority over his vineyard. And then that would be followed up by three different segments of people asking Jesus a question, and all of these questions relate to his authority. We discussed that last week. I don't know about you, but that was particularly challenging to go through. And then we come to today, where the tables turn just a little bit, and Jesus is going to be asking the question. Verse 35, all of this has been taking place in one day, one day Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey. The very next day, he starts upsetting tables in the temple. And all of this has been happening in that one day, that one occasion in the temple. And Jesus asks them, his audience, his opponents, everyone, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. 
David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. See, everything about what's going on for the past few weeks, all of this disruption in Jerusalem has to do with the fact that people just can't understand who Jesus is. In fact, this is the central question that we deal with still today. Who is Jesus? Because there's all kinds of misconceptions. There's all kinds of ideas about what Jesus is there for, who he is, what his identity is. And it's all of this that's causing problems. No matter how much Jesus would be even explicit about who he is and why he came, there's still tons of confusion. Namely, at least in this moment around this idea of the son of David. And we talked about this, how the Messiah, the Christ, the king who was to come, God's chosen king, would eventually come from the family of David. But in this culture, you see, Everyone expected this to be some kind of political ruler. Everyone expected this to be someone in the likeness of David in that he would come and set up a kingdom and he would uh, get rid of the people who were in power in Jerusalem and set up a new king and Israel would be as it was in the days before. There were other expectations involved, peace coming into the situation, but it, it looked like what it was going to be in the past, at least in their minds it was. This is who the Christ was supposed to be. This is who the son of David was supposed to be. This is what the culture said. And Jesus was constantly challenging this. It reminds me of just the fact that this is what Jesus does in every single era, in every single culture, in every single generation all over the world. He enters into a situation and he challenges and he undermines the cultural perception of who he is. Even here, 2016 Pacific Northwest, we are products of culture. We cannot help, just like people in other parts of the world cannot help the culture that we are raised up in. And if there is any understanding of Jesus whatsoever, our culture will inform that somehow in some way. And so there are parts of our culture here today in this part of our country where we maybe misunderstand Jesus a little bit or we have a particular skew to what we believe Jesus needs to be like. Think of it like a caricature. See, if you were to go to a carnival, if you were to go to a fair or even the zoo, I feel like my kids ask us for a caricature painting or face painting every time we're there. But if these caricatures, what they are is you'll sit down and the artist will look at your face and they'll try to find some kind of prominent feature. Now, all of the features of your face make up your face, but they'll try to find one and then they'll overemphasize it. And so by the time it's done, you look at your picture, you kind of have a laugh. You're like, okay, I guess that's me, but not really. But you can tell it's you. And, and that's how caricatures work. They work because you overemphasize a particular feature. And this is what happens in cultures all over the world it happens in cultures all throughout the generations, all throughout the centuries, that for some reason we overemphasize a particular facet of who Jesus is. And in every single occasion, Jesus comes in and often makes us mad in the process, but he does it because he's loving. He undermines that and he shows us who he really is. Now, in this particular case, how does Jesus do that? Or I would even say, in any case, how does Jesus do that? You see, if 
cultures all over the world, at least those cultures who have an awareness of Jesus and his purpose, if these cultures all over the world have a particular bent, have a particular caricaturized view of who Jesus is, how, how do we come back to the center? It's a lot like the way tuning pianos works, that you have to have one particular device, maybe a tuning fork that sets the measure for every other piano that you come into contact with in the same way God has provided this. And it's exactly what Jesus does here. As you notice what he said, what he did, he turned them back to the scriptures. Because in all of these cultures, and as much as we don't like it here in kind of our anti-authority culture in the Northwest, God continually turns people back to the scriptures to understand with clarity who he is and why he has come to do what he has come to do. And in doing so, he takes them to Psalm 110. So if you want, you can go ahead and turn there with me, Psalm 110. And this is actually a psalm that David wrote a long time ago, hundreds of years before Jesus was even walking the earth. David would write this psalm, and, and notice how Jesus validates this. He, one, he says that David wrote this, okay? There are institutions in our city, I, I, I hesitate to call any institution a a Christian institution, because Christian is meant to uh, describe people, okay? But there are uh, institutions who promote Christianity in our culture here in the Northwest that would uh, draw into question whether or not Psalm 110 was written by David at all, whether or not what we're reading this morning is the word of God. But notice what Jesus said about it. He said, one, David wrote this. But two, he said, David wrote this in the Holy Spirit, affirming um, what we promote as a church that when we read this scripture, that we are reading something that, yes, it was penned by the hands of people. But in the end, the author is God, the one who is by his Holy Spirit inspiring people to write these things. And look at what David writes. Verse one, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. It's easy to see why the, why the scribes of that day would see this, say, yeah, that's, that's Messiah. That's the king who was to come. But did you see what happened? In some way that I don't know if I can describe in some way that, we may not know, David has some kind of vision. He has some kind of revelation. And in this picture, he sees in his mind, perhaps, he sees God Almighty, the Lord God enthroned. He sees him on his throne, perhaps something like the vision we would see in Isaiah. But there's something interesting that happens. There's another central figure in this vision that David is having. And this person, whoever it is, is sitting at the right hand of God. A position of honor, a position of prominence. And this Lord God says to the one who sits on his right, sit at my right until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
But the language that's employed in the Hebrew is two different words for Lord, but in the Greek, it would be the same word. Lord says to my Lord, just like we read it in Mark. In English, this is what it would sound like. This is what David is saying when he sees this. God, my master, says to my master, which is really strange, isn't it? Why would it sound like that? And why would this cause so many problems for the Jewish culture in the first century? After all, you know, this was supposed to be the son of David. He was going to come and rule and be a king just like David. But also the, in this culture, it was something where descendants would honor their ancestors. If you read throughout the Bible, you see how people speak well of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, and even of David. This is a culture where those who have come after speak well and honor and honorably of those who have gone before. And so why is this person who's supposed to come after David put in a higher position than David himself? This is what Jesus is after. How can David call one who's going to come after him? How can he call him Lord? It doesn't make any sense, especially for the Jewish mind who believed Messiah would be a political ruler just like David. How does it make any sense? And of course, again, Jesus has come to undermine this And one of the keys comes in verse 4 of Psalm 110. The Lord God, he's speaking again. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Whoever this Lord is in this psalm, whoever it is that the God of the universe, the God of all creation is speaking to, whoever it is, he's eternal And this is one of the things that would trip up many of the Jews in Jesus' day. One of the reasons why they would even seek to stone him. There's a story in the Gospel of John where Jesus is speaking to his opponents. And they're speaking about Abraham. And Jesus says, Abraham longed to see my day. And they are agitated. They're annoyed because, wait a minute, Abraham's been dead For hundreds of years, how can you speak of yourself in the same sentence as Abraham? How can you say he longed for your day when he's been dead for so long and you just showed up here? You're like only 30 years old. How is that even possible? And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Invoking that same word that God would use for himself in Exodus, speaking from a burning bush, speaking of his eternity. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Again, Jesus undermining everything that they thought was the case about the Christ and the purpose of the Christ and what he intended to do. He's already been doing this, Jesus has. He's been talking about how he's come to be betrayed into the hands of sinners and to give his life for the forgiveness of sins and to live forever because he will rise from the grave and they still weren't getting. And then all of a sudden he quotes from Psalm 110 where this king that they would anticipate is said to be eternal. This is what Jesus does. Because for us to properly come under 
his authority, if he really is a king, we have to understand who it is that we are submitting to, who it is that we are seeking to follow. And I think we're going to see one last problematic attempt to try to submit to that authority, or maybe not even an attempt. It's Jesus' warning in verse 38. In his teaching, he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, and they like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers. These will receive a greater condemnation. Jesus just said this about one of a group of some of the leading religious authorities in the day. And they're going to receive an even greater condemnation, but what is it about it? It's easy because, you know, we, we don't have a synagogue. We don't have chief seats, places of honor. You know, we don't have these long robes that they're talking about. So it's easy to be distanced from this. But let's focus at verse 40 for a moment. Devouring widows' houses. We don't exactly know what this is about. Anything, if, if we were to go study history, if we were to study some anthropology, it would be really hard to understand what it meant for them to devour widows' houses. Anything we could come up with, there's some pretty good ideas that I read through, but it's largely just speculation. But I don't think we have to know what it was to understand the heart of what's going on here. Because what does God have to say about the widow in general throughout the Bible? You see, if you read from beginning to end, in several spots, you see God speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves, so to speak. You see him come to the aid of those who are defenseless against others. And oftentimes in this category was the poor, the orphan, the widow, the sojourner, which means immigrant. And you see that all throughout the Bible. You even see it in James chapter 1, verse 27. Very briefly, James 1, 27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And so when it says that they're devouring widows' houses and then all throughout the scriptures, we see that God values widows and these scribes are devouring them. How are they loving God? In fact, you can easily say that they're hating God and even worse, they're doing it under the guise of religion. You see, when it says that they're wearing long robes, those aren't everyday clothing. Those are like uh, celebratory robes, most likely a festival style of robe. And for some reason, you know, these scribes are wearing them on a pretty regular basis when that's not their intent. And so they're trying to portray some kind of image to the world. Maybe it's that they're religious. Maybe it's that they're holy. But get this, when it says who devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers. It's even more sinister than that. 
the Greek would actually read in this way. They devour widows' houses and they make excuse for it by offering long prayers. Yikes. You see, even religion can be a guise for hating the things, for hating God, but also hating the things that God values, despising the things that God values, cheapening the things that God values. And that's what Jesus is getting after here. And and there is an irony to it. These are religious leaders who were supposed to be promoting love for God, but they got caught up in something that actually led them to hating God and hating the things that God values. And it was all under the guise of religion. But how did they do it? Because right now we're probably feeling a little distant from that. That's where this other stuff comes in. They like respectful greetings in the marketplaces, chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. How do we get to this place where we can be like these scribes? It's about a matter called approval. Seeking after, it, there's a lot of ways I think we can get there, but one of the things that can get us there is this insatiable desire for the people around us, for the world around us to give us the thumbs up, to give us their approval. And it happens in a lot of different ways. It says in the marketplace, for us, this would be the equivalent of out in the business world. Maybe it's the private sector. Maybe it's the public sector. Maybe it's the workplace. Maybe it's in your neighborhoods. Maybe it's at the grocery store. Whatever it is, it's out there. And wherever we feel the need that we have to have someone else's approval and we have to have it so much that sometimes we are even willing to compromise what God values, we're acting just like these scribes. Anytime that we surrender something that God wants us to hold on to, so that we can get the okay from somebody else. We act just like these scribes, but it's not just out in the marketplace. They also want chief seats in the synagogues. They want to be well-known. They want to be approved even in religious settings. So for us, that could be in here. That could be any one of us needing and craving the approval of another person, whether it's a person in authority, or maybe it's a member of the opposite sex or whatever it is, it could be, tied to the way that another person performs a particular task or a ministry function or where the way that they speak or the way they do, the way they serve or host, whatever it is, we could become jealous. We could long for their approval. And in the same way, we become like the scribes or how they longed for places of honor at banquets See, the thing here is that the poor didn't throw banquets. Poor widows didn't throw banquets. Poor sojourners didn't throw banquets. The impoverished and the unpopular didn't throw banquets. The people who threw banquets in this day were the powerful and the influential. You ever heard of something called name dropping? And how lame it is? 
and how each of us has done it. That's kind of what that's like. Where we observe somebody else that everyone looks up to. It could be their power. It could be their influence. It could be their wealth. It could be their deeds, whatever it is. These are the types of people who in this day would throw banquets. And we observe that this person, this man or this woman has lots of influence, lots of popularity, lots of power. They are approved by tons of people. Whether they want it or not, they are approved. Everyone loves them. And so we think to ourselves, if I could get that person to approve of me, then by extension, I have the approval of all of these people. We do that too, don't we? In the same way, we are like these scribes who even with a veil of religion, we can wind up hating the things that God loves, devaluing the things that God values, and even making excuses for it. When I said that they devour widows' houses and they make excuses for offering long prayers, what that means is I'm really terrible at doing this thing that God really cares about. But you know what? It's okay because I'm really good at this other thing. God doesn't care about that part of my life so, par- so, so long as I'm really good at this other thing. I mean, guys, it could be anything. It could be the way we view our money, the way we view um, our time, our talents, our treasures, all of that stuff. It could be our view of politics. It could be our view of the poor. It could be so many different things and we just neglect it and we set it aside and we make an excuse for it because I offer long prayers. I'm good at that. And this is the kind of stuff you read and you're thinking, ouch, yikes. And it's not by coincidence at all that the very next person we meet in the gospel of Mark is a poor widow. You see, Jesus is going to go sit down in the temple nearby the treasury where people would come in regularly and give their offerings. And he would make some observations. He would see that the rich are coming in and they're giving out of their surplus. They're putting in lots of money. And and I do need to clarify this. This is not an indictment on being wealthy. In fact, I, I would scarcely say there's much of an indictment at all in, in a large part of scripture about just simply being wealthy. Oftentimes the indictment comes upon the, bu- the abuse of that wealth, okay? And we talked about that a few weeks back with the rich young ruler. There wasn't an indictment against his wealth. It was against his youth, use of wealth and where his heart was. So that's not what Jesus is after here. So I need to clear that up. And in fact, it's written in Old Testament laws to accommodate for the fact that there will always be rich and there will always be poor. So for example, whenever Jews had came maybe upon a particular season where there were festivals or maybe there was the... Um, the offering over of a child to God, dedicating a child to God, those who had more means offered something to God that reflected that. So maybe it was some kind of bull or a ram or a sheep or something. But if you did not have means, you would offer something like two turtle doves, two pigeons. And, and this is actually what you see as we prepare and we're in the midst of Advent. When you're reading through the gospel of Luke, you see when Jesus is presented at the temple, 
Because he comes most likely from a poor family, they're offering two turtle doves as a dedication. So the indictment isn't against wealth. So Jesus is just observing all of these people putting in large sums of money and reasonably they could be doing that as an act of obedience, maybe even an act of worship. But even in the midst of all of that, none of it really sticks out. But you know what does stick out? This is poor widow. It says that she has two small copper coins. Now, these coins would have been the smallest denomination of currency in that day. She had two of them. And what does she do? She comes up, she puts them in, and this is what gets Jesus' attention. Verse 43, calling his disciples to him, he said to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all that she owned, all that she had. See, if the previous section was about these scribes who were so hungry for the approval of the world around them that it eventually led to their rejection before God, then what we have here is an example of someone who has no approval from the world but was accepted by God. I mean, think about it. No one wants to hang out with the poor. When's the last time any of us went and just sat down with someone downtown who was poor and begging for money and just spent time with them? I said, hey, you want to go get some wings and watch a football game? I'll buy. You know, that, that's just an observation throughout the centuries. Even Solomon in his observation of the world would write down in the Proverbs that a wealthy man has many friends, but the poor has none. That even the poor is despised by his family or her family. This, this isn't prescriptive. You know, in the Proverbs, there are things that are prescriptive that tell us what to do. So it's not saying do that. It's just making an observation about the way the world works. And so this woman, even if she wanted the approval of the people around her, she wouldn't get it because she's poor. And so in terms of social capital, social currency, this woman has nothing. And maybe some of us can relate to that, at least in the sense that have you ever had a moment in your life, a season in your life where you felt like for some reason you were being rejected by a lot of people? whether it was circumstances, whether it was just outright people rejecting you, whatever it was, you felt really alone and you felt set off from the rest of the world, what may have happened in that is you, you may have felt closer to God than you've ever felt before. It's strange how that works. But for this woman, no one else would really notice her. But it's amazing that here Jesus did. See, rest in God's acceptance frees us to give ourselves to him. This is why as a church, over and over again, we seek to preach the gospel. Why in our missional communities, we seek to preach the gospel to each other. Why we encourage people in their, 
in their DNA groups to preach the gospel to each other, why in our own times with Jesus, as we're meditating on scripture, as we're praying or whatever it may be, we are saying preach the gospel to yourselves because when we come under the fact that God has accepted us, everything else changes. And that's where our radical love comes in. That's when our radical sacrifice comes in. And that is when we come to the place where we are willing to give everything to God. And for this woman, it was a very symbolic gesture. She had no idea where her next meal was going to come from. And the fact that she had two coins was very purposeful. Because if you have two coins and you want to give something to God, what's the easiest thing to do? God, one for you and one for me. But both of them. What gets us to this place? It's resting in the acceptance of God. And how does that come? Well, I'm going to turn you back to Psalm 110. In this vision that David has, we talked about how this was an eternal king. This was an eternal Lord. But there was another feature that we didn't talk about. Coming back again to verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, you are forever, but you are what forever? Priest. And what does a priest do? Generally speaking, a priest is a mediator. A priest is one who comes in between God and people and brings them together. A priest is one who makes sacrifice on behalf of people so that they may draw near to God. And yet another feature that would trip up this culture in this time and in this place, the fact that Jesus was a priest, but he's a priest unlike any other priest. Yes, he would be a part of drawing people to God who were far away from him. He would be a mediator coming between them. Jesus would make sacrifice, but the thing about Jesus is the sacrifice was not some animal. The sacrifice was himself. Given on our behalf, and when we realize when we realize that God gave himself for us, it is so much easier to give ourselves to him. His acceptance comes because he first gave himself for us. There's a lot of ways that we can respond to this. In a moment, I'm gonna be praying for us and I'm gonna ask God to give you something very specific, to give you something very tangible, very practical for you for your family, for you individually, for you, you and your roommates, whatever it may be, for you to practically respond to this in a way that the widow would. For some of you, it may be financially. For some of you, it may be giving up a particular sin that you've been ignoring. For some of you, it may be something related to relationships. There are all kinds of ways this can go, and I believe that God can speak to each of us. But in all this discussion about the authority of Jesus, 
It's not a coincidence that the only one we see really respond in a way to God is this poor widow who was basically left with nothing. But it didn't matter because she had God's approval. We're going to go ahead and open the table. This is a time for us to remember the body and the blood of Jesus. It's a time for us to remember that sacrifice in our place so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be accepted, so that we could be loved, even if everyone else rejects us. And it's also a time to remember, just like Psalm 110 says, that this is a king and he is coming. And just like the scripture reading for Advent that there's going to come a day when he's going to set up peace on the earth such that a child could play with a cobra. (laughs) The lion could lie down with the lamb. And Jesus said, when that kingdom comes, he will share this meal with us again in that kingdom. It's an opportunity for you to respond and me to respond through singing, through silent meditation, through committing ourselves uh, to giving of our time of our talents, our treasures. There's a giving box in the back. If you want to do it in that way, you could engage and respond through some kind of reconciliation here in this room with a brother or sister you have offended. But the point is to respond. Heavenly Father, that is what we ask for. We ask that you would help us to respond in a way that reflects the attitude of this widow. This woman who maybe faced the rejection of everyone around her and was left with nothing, but she knew she had you. Lord, please help us to respond in a way that reflects that kind of attitude. God, help us to be generous. Help us to cast our lives into the treasury just like she did. If there's someone in this room who has the sense on their hearts that God has been, that God, you have been wanting them to do something for a while now and they just haven't said yes. They've been wrestling with, with faith, belief. Lord, please help them. If there's someone who's been struggling to let go of a sin or with a, a grip on their finances or whatever it may be, God, help them, help us to trust you as this widow did. And as we go out into this world, God, help us to crave your acceptance above all and to be freed by the fact that you have indeed given it to us in Christ. And even if this world rejects us, Lord, help us to be at rest in you. We love you, Jesus, and we pray in your name. Amen.